big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. In January, MPs on the Digital, Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee published their report into the sustainability of local journalism. If you were to read that report, as I did in preparation for the panel that you're about to hear, you'd be forgiven for thinking that local journalism was in serious jeopardy. Not so. When I arrived at Broadcast House, the University of East Anglia's broadcast training facility, housed in the former studios of Radio Broadland in the heart of Norwich, something remarkable happened. As I looked at the wall of achievement, which tells current students of the successes of their forebears, and talking to students at Broadcast House, I realised that the Select Committee's prognostications might be wide of the mark, and that the future wasn't quite as bleak as had been painted. Well, we're, we're here in Broadcast House, belonging to the UEA, and we're here with some MA students. On what, what, course, what course are you guys on? Masters in Broadcast and Digital Journalism. Same? They're all nodding, it's the same. Um, and we're talking to Emily. Emily... Goodwin. Emily Goodwin. So what is it like? How far are you into the course? We started in September, and now it's February, so I suppose six months in. Six months. How's it going? I think it's going really well. Um, I think it was very intimidating to begin with because we'd come from a university setting into a newsroom setting, and that was quite a big jump for lots of people. But now it just feels normal. It feels second nature, and it's a really collaborative learning environment as well, which is lovely. Fantastic. And, do you, and I'm going to ask the, the second Emily, whose name is Emily? Emily Erith. Emily Erith. Do you switch around your teams a lot? Are you are you used to working in and do you sort of come in and when you're working on a new project, is is there a new assignment of of uh, news buddies, if I can be glib? <laughs> we do get to have a lot of choice um, with like who we work with. We collaborate, and it's nice to have like the breakout areas to like really bounce ideas off each other. And I think that develops the story into lots of angles that you probably wouldn't have thought of on your own. So it's a great way to like experiment with new stories and things like that and really push yourself but then we also get assigned different teams to work in projects for summatives or formatives and then you spend time with people that you might not necessarily socialize with outside of class so it's a good way of pushing yourself and experiencing like a practical work environment but in a student setting so today you've already had a a special guest julian sturdy come in to, to to speak to you and zoe isn't it yeah, my name's Zoe. Zoe. Julian's our lecturer. He's a lecturer, so yeah. no, he's not special. He, not that special. He, he's very special. Julian brought in a special guest for us today, Mary Manderfield, and she was so inspiring. I think we all left the session with her feeling like, oh my goodness, we love her. We love how she got into her career. Um, and there's so many different ways to go into journalism. And I think that was what's so inspiring about her. She didn't have a typical career path, you know, um, going straight into one of the big TV or news stations. She had a really interesting career um, and it was fantastic to hear about that. And she was so inspiring. Well, when I was at university, um, I, there were basically, I was house shared with a load of broadcast journalism students who had basically three choices, print, TV, radio. Uh, but now, oh my God, you've got the, the big traditional outlets, you've got local news outlets, but you've also got the web and all these new TV stations, YouTube, like Byline Times. What does that do for in terms of choice? Can you, you, you feel like the world's your oyster at this point, Eleanor? Uh, yeah, so we do a little bit of everything. We've been doing uh, social media posts, making digital videos for posting specifically on 
uh, YouTube or TikTok or other social media. But we do do the traditional things as well. We've been learning radio production, TV production and writing. And I think it is really important, especially now, to be able to do a little bit of everything because you never know what you're going to be asked to do and you never know what path you're going to be going into. So I think it's really important that here we learn just a little bit of everything so we're really prepared for whatever life throws at us. And so, so what do you think about this facility? It's, it's, it's really, really, really well stocked. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. We've got a television studio. We've got um, two radio studios and one of them is a podcasting studio, which mm-hmm. I believe you're podcasting yes, in today. today. Uh, yeah, but we also have our newsroom with all the computers it's, yeah, and all our breakout spaces and all our equipment, it's absolutely brilliant. We have access to so many different things. So to draw this to a close, because I can see um, various people appearing at the end uh, who I'm supposed to be talking to. So uh, quickly draw this to a close. Where, I just want to know, out of interest, where are your, your sort of dream end point, not end point, but, you know, where you want to go post-MA, um, where your, your media career, where you'd like to see that take you. Emily. Um, I'd like to be a travel journalist, um, and if not, like, world news, something a bit wider than our very small... I, I grew up in Suffolk, and I lived in Suffolk. That's no, and, um, no shame in that. No, no shame in it, but I think I'd like to really, you know, broaden my horizons and, and experience no the world, yeah. Emily. Um, I'm still quite open to trying different things, but I think my interests are either in like sports journalism or in like the theatre world as well. Oh, wow. Quite like um, not necessarily performing, but doing something that involves the press PR for that would be interesting. Sorry, I'm waving. <laughs> so, uh, hazard with this, you end up waving it around, and people haven't quite finished yet. Um, you got the the North Norwich Festival coming up, so that'd be you know in- interesting, right. interesting beat to yeah. Zoe. Yeah, so um, before I came to the Masters, I was a meteorologist, um, so I worked in weather forecasting. So after this Masters in broadcast journalism, I hope to go into something that will merge the two of those things together. So I'd really like to go into climate journalism, or possibly, if I'm lucky enough, weather presenting. Oh, wow, that's a, that's that's really interesting, because I, I went and interviewed the head of the, the Tyndall Centre uh, not so long ago, and that, that was a really fascinating, really positive, positive chat. And Eleanor. Uh, Well, I'm really interested in investigative journalism. I really like finding things out, doing a bit of my own research. But I'm very interested in documentary making, something kind of more long form, so I can do a lot of research on one project and kind of learn more about it and develop a particular story for a long time. Thank you so much for talking to me. Best of luck in your your studies. You certainly seem to be having a lot of fun. And uh, I think that's the key, really. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's a very good thing that I was then able to sit down in Studio 2 of Broadcast House with an extremely distinguished panel to find out more. This is a really, really fabulous day. I love doing this because here I am with, and I'm going to say it again, I said it in the test run, they chuckled, (laughs) and I think that's most unfair, the most distinguished panel I've had on Eastern Promise to date, and it is Introduce yourselves. I cannot do you justice. Hello. Shall I go first? You go first, David Powell. Good to good to hear, um, be here, Mike. Um, yep, I'm David Powell, the uh, ex-editor of the Eastern Daily Press and journalist for 23 years or so. And I am Mike Talbot. A lot of X today. I'm ex-head <laughs> of news at ITV Anglia. Uh, and um, uh, before that, spent many years, decades, in fact, working for ITV and making documentaries for the BBC and for Sky and Channel 4 and 5. 
And I'm Claire Parisi. I'm the course director, current, not ex, Yay. course director for <laughs> broadcast journalism at the University of East Anglia. And I am ex-BBC and various other bits and bobs. Excellent. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> now, I was going to come in. I let you all know that I was looking at the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee's report on the sustainability of local journalism. And that wasn't the most encouraging <laughs> parliamentary report I've ever read. They tend not to be very uh, uplifting and, and happy, but this one was particularly downbeat. But then I came in here, I met Claire for the first time, met some of the students, got them recorded, and I actually a lot more excited and buoyed about things than, than, than I otherwise would have been uh, having not done that. So I'm going to start with David, uh, go to Mike and then Claire, and just ask you to describe where are we at the moment, what's, from your point of view, the current situation of journalism in your field, uh, bringing whatever, whatever you think is relevant, but what's the, what's the status quo? Where are we at, David? So um, clearly my, my, my background is, is primarily newspapers and online and uh, regional media, having worked in regional media for the whole of um, my career but obviously knowledge on, on other spheres as well. And I was thinking about this driving in, I was thinking about what would be a word to describe the current situation. I must have seen your notes. Um, and I, the word that came to my mind was, was a muddle, a bit of a muddle, um, if I'm honest. Um, I would, another way to describe it would be a crossroads. Um, not quite sure where to go next. That's, they're, they're some of the phrases that I'd use to describe, certainly regional media, certainly the print and online landscape at the minute. Um, for years and years and years and years and years, newspapers were very comfortable doing what they're doing. They had a monopoly. Um, you know, every, it was, newspapers in particular were, a li were effectively a licence to print money. Um, the internet, I know we talk about, I'm talk, going to talk about the internet now, like it's still something that's relatively new, but, um, and it's balmy that we're here sort of treating, I will be treating it like it is, but the internet has come, come along and over the course of the last 15, 20 years, completely changed absolutely everything. And as an industry, I think, and I will hold my hands up to being part of the industry, you know, none of what I say today is, is going to be about finger pointing or anything like that, because I've been part of trying to find the answers just as much as um, Mike has and Claire has and former colleagues have. The industry has been pretty poor, in my opinion, and pretty slow to react to the challenges that, that online has brought. And other um, other media, other industries, um, the likes of Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, have just stolen a march on on a lot of the, the, the ground that the media have. BBC, perhaps you could say, is an example of where they have been um, good at kind of really um, changing as, as the media landscape changed. But in the field that, that I've primarily worked in, I feel that we've been very, um, very, very kind of slow to work out what to do. And now the crossroads that I describe is, um, do you charge... Is, it, is content online free? Um, if you do that, there's loads of adverts. What's the future of newspapers if everyone's going to um, go into online? It's all still up in the air. And no one, from what I've seen and from my experience, really knows knows the answer. Now, I have my own views, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, as mm -hmm. to what some of the answers are. But go back to your question. That's where I'd say that the kind of landscape in terms of my area of expertise is at a muddle trying to work out what to do next and how to safeguard the next 30 to 50 years. Mike. 
To be fair to the DCMS, I think there are grounds for pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) However, however, um, I'm an eternal optimist. And uh, Dave talks about change and and there's been more. I mean, every industry uh, has had change for decades. But I, my entire career has been one where I've been facing change. Uh, I arrived, uh, my first job was on the Beckles and Bungie Journal in the Beckles office where there were at that time four full-time reporters <laughs> covering uh, the Waveney Valley. Um, and that was, I arrived the week that uh, hot metal printing ended at at what was then Eastern County's newspapers. Um, Four years later, I moved across the car park from Rouen Road to Anglia House, to uh, Anglia Television, as it was then. And that was the last week that uh, Anglia News was shot on film. So, you know, everything was changing. And, of course, everybody was going, oh, it's all changing. It's all Nothing's going to be the same. Is this going to be a good idea? Is this going to be a bad idea? Um, And uh, at that time, a bit like Dave was saying, that the the newspaper industry was seen as a bit of a license to print money. One of the uh, chief executives of an an ITV company, not Anglia, famously said in public, ITV is a license to print money Um, because it was the only place that advertisers could hit millions of eyeballs at once. And it was millions. I mean, you know, uh, soap operas would get over 20 million viewers a night or whatever. Um, uh, you know, audiences which now people would sort of die for, really. Um, and so the uh, when I joined, which was um, the mid-80s, I, I always think the sort of the ITV gravy train was just pulling into a siding, really. It was, um, <laughs> you know, things were not coming off the rails by any means, but they were, uh, they were changing. And, and, you know, for the first time, I mean, I never heard the word budget for the first few years that I worked in television. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was very different. Then along came Channel 4 and Channel 5. And then, as Dave says, along came the internet, the World Wide Web, as we call it to start with. Um, and that changed everything. Um, and, and to be honest, the only thing that hasn't changed is the pace of change. Uh, and if anything, it's speeded up. You know, Dave talked about being at crossroads. Um, I think we've just uh, have been facing crossroads all the time. But going back to where I started, I actually think there are far more grounds for optimism than pessimism. But um, the key is funding and, and quite where that comes from, uh, you know, is what we're probably going to be discussing at some length today. Claire, you, you, Claire, you have... Uh responsibility for safeguarding shepherding can you shepherd green roots i'm not sure i'll check that out uh, safeguarding the green shoots of journalism as, as they push their way um through through the earth and, and and out into this this maelstrom this muddle as david dave, dave calls it what do you think where are we i think i think dave's right i think we are in a period of muddly change but at the same time i think that's actually quite exciting at the same time so we have seen Dave's backgrounds in print. Mike comes from telly. My backgrounds in radio. So I've seen as well, like you guys, I've seen a lot of changes over the years in terms of longer programs, bigger teams, things shrinking down. We're in a building which was the home of Heart Radio. They moved out to go back to Milton Keynes um, and left us without a base for commercial radio um, in the city for for the Heart Group at least. So yes, things are changing. What's changed, not just the internet, well, what's also changed is social media. So social media 
over and above the internet has changed the way people consume news and the way that they look at news and the way that news is distributed. And that has made the bigger difference, I would argue, than just the coming along of the internet. So we need to adapt and change to all of that. And that's part of what we're doing and thinking about that. Linear television, linear radio becomes a lot less important now. We've seen that the BBC are merging their two news channels into one, BBC World and BBC News Channel for domestic news, and they've had to cut a load of presenters. Linear news becomes less important. When I speak to the young people who you've been speaking to today, most of them never watch a TV news bulletin. And I know that's a terrible thing to admit (laughs) for journalism and media students, but they just it's just not in their habit. It's not their habit. They consume news on the fly, on their phones, on the go. And that's why all of this change is happening and why it still needs to happen and we need to adapt to it. Well, it's, it puts me slightly in mind of the, the Casey Musgraves lyric, it is what it is till it ain't anymore. Um, and one of the things I, I, I find quite interesting is to pick up Dave's point about how it's funded. Now, uh, I, in the course of, sort of reading through various bits and pieces, noticed that if you're talking about subscription models that is somebody goes to a website puts in their credit card details and their name and they can access this what we we used to do this all the time because i had a background in small p politics um access the edp and go flicking through and then saving the pdf of um, wherever my boss at the time had appeared and um apparently in norway norway 45 percent of the population have a new subscription in the u.s that's 21%. In the UK, it is 8%. Yeah. And of that 8%, 3% is at the local news. So I suppose that without getting too downbeat about it, and what we uh, really want to focus on, what can, what can we do? Is that the right answer? Why do you think that uh, in this country, and I will bring it down to the east of England fairly soon, but why are we so resistant to that? And we start with you, Dave, and then we'll go to Claire and Mike. I- I don't necessarily think resistance is the word. I think habit is is the word. There's lots of talk in the industry, you know, was the big mistake at the start to provide everything for free and then people get into the habit of getting their news for free. And then when other channels come along, social media come along and they realise actually if they're asked to pay for it, they can still get a certain element of it for free elsewhere. Um, there's a resistance to, to pay. But, you know, trends change. I don't, I don't think that, that necessarily that figure I know those figures and they're pretty gloomy and I would step as as editor of the EDP I would look at those figures and and we at one point were very much going down the route of let's see if we can get a subscriber base and that was obviously a figure that was was a big concern but you know things things do change patterns and trends do change I think one of the things that we haven't discussed yet and I think is really important to establish at the start is 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 about demand is there a demand for news and information and and journalism in the in the first place and i think it's really important for from my opinion the one thing that hasn't changed in however many hundreds of years of, of journalism or in the last 20 years is the demand for for news and information and i see that in the figures that i used to have at the eastern daily press and you see that in how people react to, to news i believe that there's still fundamentally a desire from people to know what's happening on their doorstep to know what what planning um issues are happening to know whether someone's going to be building something down down their street to know what's happening at local hospital to know whether there's been a a crash down the road people are still interested in that sort of stuff and claire talked about the young about young people now obviously it'd be easy to talk about 
a generation that we are. We're an older generation, 40 plus, however old all of us are. Um, one of the big debates, are, are young people still interested in, in news and what's happening around them? And I also would say, yes, 100% they are. And I think we've seen Brexit has had an impact on that. You know, lots of um, younger generations feeling like it was something they didn't get a sound and now it's being kind of, it's impacting their lives. We've seen that with the environment growing as an issue and, um, you know, protests around climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So the, de- the demand is there. Um, and really the conundrum, and to go back to your kind of question at the start around funding, the demand is there. The conundrum is how to how to kind of make money out of that that demand and um for me that there isn't one answer there's a whole host of answers there's a menu of answers because some people are prepared to consume their news in one way they don't want to pay for it so they might be able to put up with more adverts other people you know might be prepared to pay for it and therefore they won't get adverts the key to all of that just to, for me to finish on, i don't want to dominate this whole podcast is is the quality people want will want and will demand a, a level of quality. Now, that doesn't just mean that every story's got to be a Pulitzer Prize journalism. I think that does mean that for a certain audience, it does have to be, but it has to be quality. It has to be written well. It has to be accurate. It has to be quick. It has to be fast. Whatever you're trying to, whatever you're trying to get out of news, quality has to be at the heart of it. And that, again, is something that newsrooms across the country are really struggling with, that kind of balance of how do we keep the quality high. I agree that people are interested. They are absolutely desperately interested to find out what's happening in their local area. They want to know about what's happening in the world. They also don't want information overload, right? So there's a balance to be struck with not giving people so much news that they feel depressed and disempowered, but actually enough news that they feel like they know what's going on. I think there's an education to be done. And some news organisations have not really done this about valuing the news and what it is worth. The Guardian's very good at this. Every time you click on The Guardian, it says... We do this, we think you should pay for it, and we think we're worth paying for. And after a while, if you've got a bit of money, you give in and you give them a five or a month, right? So I think the BBC have started that process of making these promos. We are wonderful. This is why you should be paying your TV licence. So I think there's an education that needs to happen around the audience. Journalism costs money. It's an important good for society. Therefore, you should pay for it. Just like you pay for Netflix or you pay for Amazon Prime. Everything costs money. Nothing is for free. But I think we've, through these last 20 years of internet and social media, as David says, we've got used to getting it for free. We've got used to getting it for free on our mobile phones. A lot of the publishers missed a trick by giving a lot of it away. And so that those habits have got to a difficult place. And I also think that the standards, Dave started on this, have to be incredibly high, right? So you look, I don't know what the press is like in Norway particularly, but I'm sorry, a lot of the national press are pretty poor in terms of the way that they do some stories. There are a lot of very um, sexist, racist stories that I'm afraid young people today are just not going to pay for at all because they absolutely fundamentally disagree with the way that the tabloid, the national tabloid press treats some stories. Mike, do you want to offer us a broadcast? um... Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting from a broadcast point of view or from a a television point of view that, um, uh, you know, (laughs) news is very expensive to make. um, And fundamentally, uh, leaving Sky News to one side, which actually... You know, they do a very good job, but it's very much national and international. But in terms of regional news, uh, the BBC do it, funded by the licence fee, therefore most of us pay. Uh, And actually ITV do it. um, And of course, it still costs millions and millions and millions. Uh, It doesn't generate 
advertising, um, but it's a key part of the ITV brand and has become a more important part of the ITV brand actually since the pandemic. Um, and we'll probably come on to how many people consume their news in what way. But, um, you know, more people are watching ITV Anglia news now than they were in 2015, um, which is, you know, remarkable, really. Uh, and I think I did a quick sum on the back of an envelope. Uh, and I think uh, on an average night in the week in the east of England, about one in seven, one in about one in seven, one in eight people will watch regional news of one side or another. Some of them uh, watch both i think um but uh, i i think um the the the, the, the so but and of course people on itv are watching itv think they're getting it for free but you know ab- <laughs> so, uh, the advertising pays for it uh um, not entirely now there are different funding models but the advertising broadly pays for it but part of the cost of everything we buy in the shop is an, is is you know the cost of advertising so um we're all paying one way or another um, one of the things that really interested me about uh, the conversation that we about what we just just heard there is talking about breaking stories. Now, by the time a news crew can be on scene, I mean, I I, I, I date back when the first we we might often hear of a story is when you know Andrew Sinclair or Emma Hutchinson was at the door uh, wanting to talk to my boss. But these days, Twitter yeah. is straight there, and it's it's I really I suppose from from your guys david and mike's point of view how that's impacted whether that on what they how they changes the offer of local news how you know what you do to change the offer to to um, come against that and and really then i come on to ask claire how do you integrate that into the syllabus into what you're teaching these guys so i think this comes down again to quality and and sort of value really um you don't just want the news to tell you what's happening but you want the news to help you to, to inform you to help you to form your own own opinions um we would talk a lot about not just saying this has happened but how do you add analysis to that how do you add depth to that because there's two reasons why you'd want to do that one is it, it's it's good journalism but for the for the reader for the consumer for the for the viewer they get they get more out of it and at the end of you know i would always aim with an, adi- a copy of the, an edition of the EDP, for instance, I would always think, well, by the end, by the time someone's put that down, I want them to have, fe- have felt something or feel like something has changed. They might have been made to laugh. They might have been made to cry. They might have been moved to c- contribute to something, whether that's to put their name down on a um, petition or to help someone in a charity appeal. Um, or they might know something that they didn't know otherwise. If you could get one of those six things and I think you provided value for money and you hopefully the reader could see that you had it that there was a value in 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 that product and I think you know that that is a really a key point you can't rely on the breaking news I still think that you can to an extent still utilize that because obviously one of the things that media have is a tremendous reach so yes you might grab something on Twitter, but it ain't instantly going to be going to be everywhere. Often it's your, it's your news organizations that, that will spread that. But I do think the challenge is added value. What can you add that is different to what you, you can, can just, just get elsewhere or by sort of having a look on the internet yourself? Well, I'll just, just before I jump, jump to Mike is that um, you, in the, the kind of the WhatsApp chat we had setting this up, you, you, you brought the case of uh, Nicola Bully up. And why I raise that now is, is that yes, police forces will put out their tweets uh, but there's still there is still a press conference mm. and there is still a table with a police officer or multiple police officers and witnesses and what have you 
Mike, um, in terms of breaking breaking news, uh, and journalists are trained to ask those questions, aren't they? They're trained to sit there and and in, interrogate in a way that that. that people like me you just aren't yeah i think in terms in, in terms of broadcast and again i'm sort of thinking about regional uh television news really there's almost now two parallel things going on online um uh the the uh itv anglia news service online is more reactive obviously because um uh, it's quicker you you haven't got to go out and film something necessarily um and 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 they cover a lot of court stories um, they cover all sorts of things which don't always make the programme at six o'clock. In fact, quite often they don't. No. Or if they do, they're just a, a nib, a news in brief item. Um, whereas you get to six o'clock and for some, mercifully, quite a lot of people, um, it's still an appointment to view. They'll sit down with the tea or they'll have it on in the corner um, and, 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 and get that in-depth analysis. The other thing I think is key from a broadcast point of view and, and a visual medium is personalities. And, you know, we work very hard in terms of the way, you know, I think Anglia would big, big us up. But I think we've got, you know, two brilliant presenters who work really well together and have a real affinity with the audience. They're both from the region um, and, and, and ITV News generally all around the country has a really strong team, as, as does the BBC, of course. Um, interestingly, because of the BBC cuts and the fact that we may come onto this, they're now starting to divert finances into digital away from TV and radio, um, they've gone down to one presenter and they've gone down to one programme covering the whole of the east of England. So mm. if you live in Milton Keynes, you're going to hear about Cromer, whereas on Anglia, you won't. <laughs> just get that <laughs> just in. Just get that plug in. Just there, get that in. Like Claire. Just, just, I think we, we do a lot of different things and we're evolving the courses all the time. Yesterday, we ran a breaking news exercise for about 40-odd students where, and I'm going to just... This genuinely was pretend. We told them that the Bacton gas terminal had blown up. It hasn't. It hasn't. But we told them it had. And we made. We all pretended to be the villagers and we pretended to be the shopkeepers and they had to ring us up in the old-fashioned way that you would. But as well, they were pretending to gather. How would they gather from Facebook and Twitter mm. And, mm. and Insta and TikTok and all of that? So it's bringing those old journalistic skills phoning people up, talking to them and bringing in the new journalistic skills of scraping things through social media, but not forgetting, I need my copyright permission. Who owns the copyright on that photograph? Mm. So there's all these new skills that you've got to teach them as well. And um, David talked about um, analysis. That analysis is not just happening in the papers and it's not just happening on TV. It's also now happening on Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, so you're getting people making these videos, giving their insight, giving their analysis on a story. So... It's still happening, but the platforms are shifting. Yeah. So Don't we need to a, adapt to I that. Think, I, as in, if I'm going back to Nicola Bully, was her name? Um, the, yeah. the, the missing woman who's probably in the river. Um, really interesting. I saw on TikTok actually yesterday um, someone who apparently, I have no idea about her credentials, um, was a body language expert and just put herself up there after the um, press conference that the boyfriend or partner or husband of Nicola had done and started analysing his body language and basically saying, look, well, dodgy. Well, I, you know, this is this. And, and, and I have no idea who she was or but she just popped up in my TikTok stream and it, she will have done on lots of others because I certainly don't follow her. Um, and, and so I think 
it's, it danger. comes back to credibility, doesn't it? And credentials. Yeah, and there's a real danger in that, isn't there? And I think that's the difficulty. That's part of the kind of media savvy education that we give give our young people now about what are the sources that you can trust, you know? And obviously the BBC and ITV and EDP building a brand which says you can trust us, we're trained, we're reliable, we're going to check it out before we put it out, yeah? You don't get that so much on those social media platforms, but at the same time, that's where a lot of their information is mm. coming from. Mm. So it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. I mean, I just, just to go back to... to to my experience briefly um i had hostile interview training not that i i mean the first interview i actually gave was post my political career but i had hostile interview training where i was being uh, harangued about um my, my my links to uh to uh, uh onshore green wind power slush funds <laughs> that didn't exist i have access to no slush funds more than more's the pity um but um, i mean i it, it's a really good point because there's people like me who basically time on my hands and I blunder in and, and, and make stuff up no not make stuff up but make all this up as I go along and, and I and I'm beholden to nobody yeah. uh, there's the great white great wide world of the internet where you know it's uh, I'm a, saddled myself up with my cowboy hat on and rode into town uh, nobody asked me and I'm as I say not accountable accountability is an important and a hugely important part of the service that local media offers. Mm. Dave, you you alluded to this earlier in talking about planning. I know that's a big, big thing that the EDP does talk about a lot. And for, for their demographic, it is a huge issue. It is a huge issue. And in terms of holding local councils to account, which only happens on a national level in the most disastrous of circumstances, that that's absolutely vital. And, and uh, Mike, I mean, if you're looking at Ang ITV Anglia, you've got things like Northamptonshire. Uh, which I know quite well, where basically the, North, uh, the Northamptonshire County Council fell over. Local uh, National government rode in and reorganised it, whether the local people wanted it reorganised or not. And that made the national news, but it was led locally. How, quantify for us how important that role is. Um, I'd, I'd say it's huge, and we covered that northamptonshire story you know week in week out for months um another one that, that dave will obviously be very well across is the um, norfolk and suffolk mental health trust uh, and the east anglian ambulance trust you know these are these are uh, stories that run and run and run and i do and, and you know one hopes that slowly but surely uh, improvements will be made although it does seem to be very slowly and not very surely uh, but i do wonder without that constant pressure from the local media um whether you know that that change would happen at all I think the, the, you talked about some big examples there, and a, another massive example I'll, I'll give on that is, is COVID. Um, I know we don't want to go go back there, but I remember saying to my team at the time, you know, there's no bigger hyper local story than this. The situation around COVID, just go back, you know, people were in in panic mode, no one knew what to believe. There was, you know, conspiracy theories flying around around everywhere. But the situation in Cromer was completely different to the situation in Great Yarmouth, which was completely different to the situation in, in Lowestoft. And without a strong local media to tell people about that, how, how would people know mm. what, how, what to make of it, what yeah. to understand, what to act? It's, it's, it's so important. But just finally, that's the big stuff. And I just don't think we should undervalue the, the small stuff, you know, the stuff that matters massively to eight people. Um, that's the sort of stuff that local media has to be there for because if they're not, no one is. And that 
really, really worries me. That's terrible for democracy and that is a real disaster, a real disaster for our communities. And, and, the, and local radio has actually been really, really good at that over the years. If you look at what the BBC local radio stations have been able to do, they have had majority speech-based programmes in the mornings and majority speech-based programmes at drive time and they have been able to get their councillors in, they've been able to get people in from the Mental Health Trust and really, really dig in and give them, you know, let's give them a seven-minute interview. Let's really, I know that sounds like not a long time, right? But give them a long mm. interview mm. and really challenge them on what they're doing. So it's been fantastic that the, the BBC local radio stations have been able to do that. It's a shame, unfortunately, that their services are being cut back under the current situation, but they'll still be able to do that at breakfast time, which is so, so, so important for people to have that opportunity. We did it, Dave and myself, we had a, a local politics programme on television, local, local, Mustard TV in Norwich. We did, we did that for three years. And that was great as well. When we had the Rainbow Coalition on the Norfolk County Council, we were able to hold them to account on what they did. We had politicians, we had debates for local elections as well. And Without that scrutiny, all sorts of things could possibly fly under the radar and happen that we that we don't that we don't know about, but we need to know about. Absolutely, and and just from our point, my point of view as, as someone with experience in that political world, I remember one of the most exciting days in my career was the expenses scandal. The day that broke, yes, that was broken by the Daily Telegraph, but my boss was not worried about the Daily Telegraph. He was worried about ITV Angler. Anglia. He was worried about Look East. He was worried about the EDP and the Dis Express. And we really sort of had to race to wherever he was that morning and, and sit around in, in, a, in a pub in Halston, as it turns out, and, and strategize. And, and what are we going to do? Yeah. And, and it was that local focus because that is where most of the people who really cared about what their MP had slash hadn't done uh, could be found. There's so much about that example that, you know, just wouldn't have been known about. And it, it I think it led to so much more um, scrutiny and, you know, it led to some some real terrible examples of where people were, were just taking the, the mickey out of the system and and really not serving their, you know, their constituents to the to the to the best of their ability. So it's a, it's a great example, you know, broken by a national newspaper, but only the, the regional media can really go down to that grassroots level and cover the people that matter to the people who are watching that programme or reading that newspaper. I've long been a, a huge fan of, of local radio. In fact, the first time I came into this building, it was Radio Broadland, when um, I think there were six, maybe eight journalists working here full time <laughs> when it went on air. Um, uh, but uh, I'm just really trying to think of which prime minister, because there's been so many in the last few months. I think it was the current one. I think it was Rishi Sunak before Christmas decided to do a, a tour. I think it was around about the time of the party conferences and he decided that he was just going to be interviewed by local radio. Was, was it Rishi was or was it Liz? Liz? Well, I think it might have been Liz. Maybe it was Liz. She ended up in Leeds where yeah. she got an absolute she, Well, I mean, that, you know, car crash silly, silly them thinking that local radio is going to give you yeah. an easy ride. Yeah. You know, you're That's right. It was Liz Trust. Such an important example. <laughs> that is such an important example because it is exactly that. It was thought... Yeah, no one's going to pay any attention. We're no. fine. We're just... And of course, every local radio station, right? What we this is our local issue. What do you know, you who want to be or are now prime minister? What do you know about the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital? You know, whatever. Yeah. It's it's uh, it was it, you know, I'm, uh, and I am slightly worried about the fact that you know the BBC are diverting funds away from local radio and it's becoming less local. And I think one of the key points that to to follow up from there is that there are still in the regional there are fa fantastic journalists mm. out there my concern is that 
because of the way that pay has changed, because of the way that newsrooms have changed, and because of the way that large companies have come in and and just homogenized everything and stripped away some of the some of that quality, it it's harder to come by. It's harder to come by that that quality journalism. It's still there. There are some fantastic journalists across the board in in this region, but hand on heart. There aren't as many as, as there were. And, and I'm, you know, I say that as someone who hates people who say things were better in my day. I'm talking, my, I still see my day as now. Hand on heart, I know that the level of, of journalism is not as high, as high as it was. And, and that's a real problem. And maybe that's because it's, is it harder to retain staff if the salaries are not there? Because what worries me yeah. really is about young people going into the industry, unless they've got wealthy parents, right? If they're going to be asked to do long periods of work on rubbish salaries or long periods of work of internships which are not paid, they can't do that. So you don't get the people from ordinary working class backgrounds. You don't get them from, you know, black and Asian minority ethnic groups because they just can't afford to do it. Or they get fed up when they can't career progress and make enough money to you know buy a house and look after their kids and stuff like that well what we're seeing is lots of the best journalists unfortunately go into pr and where because they're the best journalists they've got the nous to know how to get the stories written in a certain way to get them into the media and because maybe the newsrooms don't have the experience that they used to have they're getting through the filters and actually you know that over time is is quite unhealthy for democracy as well i mean that is a skill you're absolutely right that is a skill Mm. to be able to write those those press releases because, I mean, look who I'm talking to, uh, but I, I, I've seen it done both ways. And I've always tried to, to, to write those and, and know for whom you are writing. When you want to get your boss on the front cover, when he was on the mm. Public Accounts Committee, on the front cover of the Daily Mail, you know you've got a major in outrage. That's what you've got to write to. You don't, you know, but it's a completely different thing when you want to get in the ED, EDP when you want to attract the attention of Emma Hutchinson or Andrew mm. Sinclair. But when you have less experience, when you don't have those um, sort of journalists that have done it for 25, 30 years in the newsroom, it's easier to mi- to, to manipulate that. And I think that's where, mm. I th- I think that's where the danger yeah. comes. And, and I know, um, uh, having also run a charity in the in the region uh, for a while, um, and <laughs> with, a, with a sort of journalistic hat on as well, or half on, um, I knew that if I wrote a press release or worked with someone who did our PR on a, on a press release um, and, and you know, it was modelled for the Eastern Daily Press or whatever, you know, you'd send it in with a nice picture. There was a pretty good chance it was going to go in pretty much as was. And I'm not, that's not a criticism. That's just because the resource is not there um, to, to, to pick up the phone. And, and to, you know, if, if it's if it's well produced, it'll 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 get in. Mm. Absolutely. Which is, you know, we were writing nice stories about charities, but um, you could see how that could be manipulated. 100%. Yeah, Claire, do you want any, any reflection on that? No, you're shaking your head, which I was hoping you would she give agrees me time entirely. Because I was chasing after the train of thought that was pulling out of the station without me. Claire, your students, how many of those would you say are actively saying, I actually want to focus locally? Uh, and and if they are, is it a kind of a hyper local thing that that technology allows you to do, or or is that local aspect very much somewhere they know they have to pass through on the way to to, to bigger and better things? It's a real mixture. It's a real mixture. Some of them dream of you know Five Live and Radio One and World Service and all of that kind of stuff, and some of them are really really happy doing. Um, you know, hyper-local news stories and digging them out and just finding out the stories that are happening in their local area. I think they get a huge sense of achievement 
at finding those little local stories which they can turn around and and tell what's going on and find stuff out when things are going wrong when stuff's broken um or they can tell those people's stories i think they get a huge sense of achievement out of that and then from that they move on and they spread i've got a lot of students who are desperate to work at itv anglia <laughs> they keep coming to me and going how can i get into anglia i really want to work I there. I love it. one of the one of my very very fond memories because uh, i love working with young journalists and trainee journalists was um one of Claire's former students who came to us hoping to get a traineeship um, and ringing her up and saying, you're in. And she was so emotional. And she said, all I ever wanted to do was work for ITV Anglia. And, uh, you know, I thought that was fantastic. And yeah. and it's great to hear there are more. Unfortunately, there are, you know, there's only ever one traineeship per year. So. Yeah. One, one of the things I, I want to come on to uh, sort of the East of England uh, specifically and looking at, at, at the various ways uh, the, the East of England represents itself to itself in a second. But um, Dave, I think it was Dave used the word rubbish earlier. And that got me thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, that you're not talking about the usual content of my podcast, which is, and, and by the way, not for nothing, but if any, any students want to come and uh, come and uh, shadow and, and uh, do some interviewing, I'm, I'm more than happy uh, to, to, to give them that opportunity. Cause I think people probably sick of the sound of my voice by now, but, I remember many, many, many times going to village halls and watching my boss cut the ribbon on a village hall, which was funded by Biffa Waste Credits. And part of the the, the committee report, which thankfully we've moved past now, is talking about Google and Meta sponsoring this and that and the other, thinking basically what you're talking about is a social media waste credit. (laughs) And I don't, personally speaking, don't see that as a constructive way to move the industry forward that basically this is some money that the social media giants are giving you as a bit of an apology uh, for being a bit naff. Um, And I'll start with Claire and and Mike and then Dave. Well, I'm interested to hear from Dave's experience because I know that one of my graduates came to work for you as a Facebook reporter, didn't he? So, so that was a great opportunity for him to dig in as the Fakenham reporter, right? And, you know, what on earth is going on in Fakenham? Well, you would think nothing. But there he was. He did really well. Did it work? So that that was a scheme that, that Facebook would, um, across the country, including in Norfolk, would pay for um, reporters to either cover an area or a subject that maybe was otherwise going missing. So we did, at the time, had... Um, Fakenham reporter and a down the market reporter, and yes, it worked because the coverage in those areas was was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, we down the market and Fakenham got loads more stories because of it, but that's not the answer. I I agree with you, Mike, I've, and I do think that there is a there is a levy or a tax or whatever you want to call it for um, the likes of Facebook and Google to pay because they have for years taken that content that's being produced by media that are paying a lot of money for it. But as an industry, you you can only rely on handouts so much. If if we seriously think as an industry that the future um, is about handouts, whether it's from the government or from Facebook or um, or Google or whoever, then that is, a re- I think, really sad and also quite worrying. Um, we've got to find a way to stand on our own two feet. Journalism's got to remain independent. I think, great, if they're going to be taking stuff from the government, that is going to potentially put into people's minds all sorts of questions. Are they going to question, you know, the, the independent nature of it? As an industry, we kind of have to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. We kind of have to stop saying, oh, well, the internet's come along and ruined everything for us. Maybe just to f- admit to 
um, the mistakes that we've made, try new things, try different ways of working. Don't just all go down the same path, which is unfortunately, as far as the world that I've been in, my fear is that lots of media are going down the same path and potentially making lots of the same mistakes. We can't just rely on handouts. We have to find a way to stand on our own t- two feet. And to do that, you have to be prepared to invest a little bit. Some of these companies are still making a lot of money. Some of these companies are still making a lot of money. It is hard for that money to come by, but you have to trial new things, invest in a little bit, put the onus back onto quality and, and see where it goes. Yeah, and, and um, I'm still flying the ITV flag. Um, ITV is investing hugely in news um, and, and trying different things. So there, there, there is a, um, a number of daily podcasts and video, uh, because ITV is really about TV, um, has access to a lot more video uh, which can be quite expensive for other organisations. Um, but now with the launch of ITVX, um, which is sort of like a BBC iPlayer type platform, but for the first time, it includes, uh, at the moment just online, but it will be on the app as well, it includes a news service, which is kind of hybrid. It's um, So uh, you go to ITVX, and I did it this morning just to check it's all working uh, on, on a web browser, and you scroll down to what they're calling a rail of news stories. And so you will then, you can basically say, I'm interested in that one. I'm interested in that one. I'm interested in that one. It will be, there's an opening link from a recognized ITV newsreader. And then you're straight into a video report, which could be shot and cut specially for ITVX, or it could be reversioned from, from a broadcast linear TV story. Now that is going to be rolled out across the regions sometime later this year. Um, so that's a kind of video on demand news service, so which is new. So they're creating their own running order. So they're creating their own running order. Oh my goodness, I have to change um, my lesson. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, but, but that's an example and it may work, it may not, it may work for a bit and then something else will happen. I mean, one thing we learned very quickly is that if you're relying on social media platforms, if, if you don't own the platform, if you don't control the platform, you're completely at the behest of mm. Facebook's algorithms or whatever. And they change all the time. You know, they could just randomly one day say, oh, I don't think we really want, we want to see less of that or want more of that or whatever. So it's a, it, you're always playing catch up. Whereas, um, uh, you know, I think if you, if, if you can, uh, going back to the subscription thing we were talking about earlier, and perhaps we'll come on to that, I do think that is the way forward. And then provide a service that people can fashion how they want it. Um, I think I think that might well be the way forward. I mean, it's interesting. What I find interesting is your former colleagues, uh, Insight Energy, is uh, a, a production that uh, slash News Quest uh, put out for the sector. Mm. Is 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 there a certain amount of future? And I started thinking about this when I was in Cambridge and saw uh, the various sort of Cambridge things that are funded, obviously, by a lot of people want to access students, and you know uh, there are still print newspapers called the Cambridge Independent floating around Cambridge but is the future more in kind of much more niche audiences for particular I mean Norwich City fans uh, for one example um, or, or slightly broader football fans in the east of England yeah. or in Norfolk or what what have you is, is that perhaps start with you Mike again is that niche or is there a niche audience more yeah I, th- I, I, th- I think there is I mean I was you know just picking up on something Dave said earlier about the Facebook reporter that could be for a location or for a subject and I think um, the DCMS report that you referred to right at the beginning talked about the importance of community cohesion mm. that local media provided uh, but communities can be geographical or communities of interest 
And I think either of those, um, you know, can be a source of, of revenue. Um, the Pinken is is behind a paywall, isn't it? Mm, um, right. And clearly, uh, I don't know what the figures are, but clearly, you know, football fans, Norwich City fans are probably prepared to pay for what is pretty much unique content. Mm. Um, we did some research uh, for ITV Regional News and uh, we were looking sort of trying to assess uh, the way forward for regional news as opposed to local um and it was interesting i sat in sort of uh, unobserved on various um discussion groups and focus groups and 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 i remember somebody very clearly from swaffham saying well if i want to know what's going on in swaffham i go to facebook you know there's two or three facebook groups about what's going on in swaffham now (laughs) you know not very much moderated not very much necessarily in terms of reliability um but uh so 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 i think um you know, people, if, if you provided a really good, um, bespoke, high quality news service for Norwich, for instance, which, you know, someone who, who we know um, is, is starting to look at, then I think people will pay for that. You, you, you I, I did have a, a kind of a flash to a semi-life of Brian, Monty Python's life of Brian moment. <laughs> I often it? have that effect are, on people. Are, yeah. are, you, are you the, the news forum for Fakenham? With the Fakenham forum for news. How dare you? Um, and you've got to be, you've got to know the right... The, the right you know what's the right group what's the wrong group yeah. and and yeah. that's kind of the thing i one would hope um uh, I think the tricky thing is though is is that audience big enough yeah have mm. they got enough money to pay for it yeah. and are they willing to pay for yeah. it mm. I so think, that's the tricky thing isn't it so I with the pinkin yes maybe yeah. but, but not necessarily with other things the pinkin's been really successful and i think that's a great example of of um of a model that that could work but to go right back to the start there's a reason it's been successful um exclusivity and and equality yeah. It's it's people, um, you know, personalities. You touched on personalities, mm. Mike. You know, it's people who are writing Norwich City content who people respect. Um, they respect what they write, and they can't get it for free. Mm. But I think the Pinkins are a really interesting model because for me, if if to, to go back to your question, you know, that that for me is 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 really the, uh, one of the models. Because I think there's many that could work for regional media. You've got to give people what they want. There will be a proportion of people out there who will never pay for for news. That that that's gone. But they still want to know some a basic level of news. Mm-hmm. But equally, I believe there's a proportion of people out there who care deeply and want and are prepared to pay for news. But it has to be of quality. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, they're told everything that's going on in Norfolk or going in Norwich, but they're given kind of a real in-depth view on the big issues, the issues that interest them, the issues that matter to them. For me, I think that, you know, that's where the media's got to go. It's got to realise that it's not a one-size Fit, fits all approach and that you can you know adapt i think out in the hyper locals you know we do have in norfolk some some quite hyper hyper local uh, magazines certainly um up in north norfolk there's the just regional group they do a great job but you know it's it's tough it's a tough to stay to stay relevant and it's it's they probably would if they were here now and i know the guys who run it they would probably say you know we're not doing the kind of most hard-hitting journalism but it is stuff stuff that that matters to people so i think we'll see loads of different different models emerge and that's really what needs to happen in the next five to ten years. And in the radio sector things are changing as well anyway so even though Heart Radio have moved out of Norwich what we do have is Greatest Hits Radio it's run by Bauer um, and they are running they're recruiting all the time I I hear from them all the time they're looking for reporters in Essex and Suffolk um, and in Norfolk they've taken a number of my students on and these are reporters who are doing content for their radio bulletins but they're also doing little videos for online as well so 
yeah, okay, the majority of their output is music radio, not so much news, but they're still providing a local service of local news. Um, you know, on as you say, perhaps not the most, um, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning stuff, but it's stuff that people are interested in. It's stuff that people are wanting. So there is still a market for that hyper local news. And sometimes it's on radio. Sometimes it's in a newsletter. Sometimes it's online. You, you, when you were showing us your, your, your wall of students, when we came in the building, my wall of fame, Your of wall successful, of fame. my successful <laughs> student, oh. and it's it's oh, I, you know what what a thing to aspire to to be to be on a wall of fame. But one of the one of your students was was uh, in financial publications, mm. and um, would there be? Do you think uh, a future for sort of not necessarily financial, although obviously Norwich is a huge um, centre for finance, one of the biggest in the country. Would, for example, politics? I would say politics, wouldn't I? Would would that have a, a kind of more more local aspect? Because I, you, you're never shy of people who, who want to be in front of a camera or behind a microphone. I'm I'm actually going to say environmental issues yes. are huge, a massive um, issue, particularly in the eastern region. We're talking coastal erosion. We're talking, um, you know, wind farms. We're talking solar farms. There is a huge interest in environmental climate change news. And when you get people who are of a scientific bent, who understand science and who understand how reports science, a lot of journalists, to be honest, most of us, I don't know, can't speak for Mike and Dave, but a lot of us came from a humanities background. Okay, yes, humanities. <laughs> um, I perhaps don't understand science as well as I would like to. So I think there's going to be huge growth in that kind of thing. And you know, as we were saying, if you've got a niche publication, then people will say, oh, actually, it's worth me having that. It's worth me paying for that. Whether it's a local publication in Northampton, for example, covering all the things that go on in Northampton, there's a heck of a lot going on down there. Or whether it's actually, you know, a subject base, something environmental, something perhaps political as well. I think I, I interviewed, uh, I use the word loosely in, in this company, but I interviewed Asha Minns. Um, uh, at the Tyndall Centre for Climate Research. And he sort of, he was very, very good. And he was sort of saying how, oh, Scotland's rising, which means East Anglia is tipping into the sea. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just going to pause now while I, uh, <laughs> I knew my sweat house from my brow and phone my insurer. Yeah. So, I had a slight flashback then to a series, a science series, the only science series I've ever made, which was some time ago now, Dr. Mary Archer presented it. But I have this horror of going to Cambridge, which is stuffed full of very, very clever people and saying to this sort of Nobel award prize-winning um, scientist, could you sort of sum up your life's work in 45 seconds? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and then and then trying to do pieces to camera where you would then try and say what they've done in 45 seconds and they'd be surrounded by people. All I remember being in white coats, probably not anymore, just scratching their heads and going, no, no, you can't say that. <laughs> it was totally hideous. Um, but there are very clever scientists out there who can actually explain what they're doing. So yes. that would be good. Yes, there are some fantastic science communicators as well. And we, yeah. we, we're really blessed to have quite a lot of those in our region. I'm thinking of uh, Maddie Moat, particularly if you've got kids my age. Uh, not kids my age, kids of the same age <laughs> as mine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, that one's going to get cut out. That's, that's, that's why I love doing this, because <laughs> some of my uh, uh, more uh, exaggerated wibbling on can be uh, excised and left on the cutting room floor. We are, as you all know, in National Apprenticeships Week. And the 
that, that's, I don't know why. Mike. That sort of seemed to have passed me by, but yeah, that's marvellous. We are, I promise you, <laughs> in National Apprenticeships Week. And one of the things that the uh, National Council for the Training of Journalists has spoken about is getting 70 apprentices into newsrooms, two per county of the 27 counties of England uh, for two years. And I'll start with Claire. What's your reaction? I mean, do you have any kind of interaction with that? And what's your views on that? I mean, is that just an unalloyed good thing as far as your kids your yeah, people are concerned? I, I think apprenticeships are a really good idea um, because not everybody has the time or the money to go to university. So years ago, decades ago, organisations like local newspapers used to train their own staff and they would send them off to college for day release for their law and their mm. shorthand. Um, and then they would carry on working for the rest of the week. There became a shift of, um, a couple of decades ago where the organisation said, oh, do you know what? This is all a bit expensive, isn't it? Actually, I think we'll just outsource it all to the universities. And the universities went, oh, lovely. We can make some, uh, you know, we can make some lovely new courses and it'll all be fantastic. So I think, yeah, there's, there is obviously a massive place for university education for journalism. I would say that I'm a course leader and I love it. But I do think for some students it's better for them to take the apprenticeship route because then they're in employment, they're in employment from the start um, and it's less of a financial burden for them. And it's, it's like I said to you, it's about opening up more diverse group mm. of journalists, right? So not everybody fits in with the university model. Some people are much better in the workplace. And how we do it, well, I think we can do it in lots of different ways. We don't just have to do it through everybody doing a three-year degree. I think that's absolutely key around the diversity and it's not, you know, diversity of people from um, different races, different backgrounds, different upbringings. If you are just relying on, you know, mid mid newsrooms can be quite, quite middle, middle class. And that again is a dangerous, is it reflective of, um, of the, of the audience? Is it reflective of the, of the readers and the issues that they're facing? Um, so I think, yeah, the apprenticeship thing is, is a really useful way to get people into a newsroom who might not have otherwise had the chance. And if they have can't afford to go to university, but they ha just happen to be so passionate about the area they cover um, and also have great contacts because they've lived in that area and they've lived an interesting life in that area, they're going to be brilliant, brilliant journalists. And if they're brilliant journalists, they're going to go on to do some great stories, which is obviously going to be, be great for the community. It's a start, but I go back to the, to the other point I made, Mike, you know, it's all well and good bringing in, finding new schemes to bring in people at the start of their careers in. But if they're then just going to, after three or four years, go into PR or go into um, a different sphere altogether or leave the industry because they think, well, actually, this is really hard. It's not an easy industry to work in. It's incredibly hard to work in. It's incredibly important that it should be paid so much more than it is. If they're not going to be retained in that industry, then you know that, that there's no point you know you're just training people to go and do do jobs elsewhere mm. and again you know the journalism suffers and the community suffers yeah i mean as well itv is is hugely committed um uh, and has really ramped up over the last few years uh the drive for a, a sort of diverse and inclusive um recruitment process um and and i took the the, the decision to to a try trial an apprentice um two or three years ago uh, on the journalism side, we fairly regularly have apprentices on the more technical side. Um, 
where there is a fairly well-established process. Uh, on the journalism side, it wasn't very established, and, and we were kind of in the vanguard, and it, 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 we had to swap suppliers and providers during the course of the year, and it didn't work brilliantly. Um, I think with a, a, a more structured, a perhaps national apprenticeship scheme for journalism, that would be brilliant. Um, because, you know, traditionally... I think you're right. It goes in cycles. Traditionally, uh, you know, when I started, I think a lot of the uh, people I started with hadn't been to university. You know, uh, they were rooted in the local community on the EDP and they'd be like, you Dave, they'd always wanted to work on the EDP. And for that, that was fantastic. And it has to be said, relatively speaking, on on the EDP or at Anglia or Look East or Radio Norfolk, Radio Broadland or whatever, you were actually relatively well paid. Mm. Um, now, of course, the sums don't add up anymore. And, and you know, uh, th th if you come into ITV as a news trainee, um, which is hugely competitive, as Claire well knows, yes. but it's a fantastic scheme. But, you know, I, I'd be the first to say, compared with when I started as a trainee, you know, it's not that well paid. And so, uh, you know, once that initial... Um, you, you've gained all that experience and then you might move on to, to, to a network job or a national job or you might not. And, and there are people who, you know, just for purely financial reasons are leaving. Um, and that's very sad. Just before we wind up, a couple more questions. But I, I would like to, to ask uh, you, you all um, where you really would like to see local media particularly like local news media in this region go and how you'd like us to get there and if perhaps start with claire who's now smiling, smiling is like because, oh damn this is a really hard question isn't it i would i would like to see um okay i come from a radio background i would like to see radio remain strong and continue to grow it's the it's one of the most popular ways that people receive their news their information um because actually Everybody just jumps in the car and they turn on the radio and they give a listen to it every day. So I would like to see more local radio. I'd like to see more um, community radio providing that local service for people. And I'd like to see those local commercial stations and the local BBC stations in Essex, in Suffolk and in Norfolk continue to be strong and continue to grow. And have them work together with their online presence so that they can build their online communities who will come to the radio and their radio communities will go to online. So, I mean, that's that's where my heart is. I love radio and I think actually a lot of people do and bringing those communities together can provide a really strong public service for people. I think the BBC have really cornered um, the, the market in kind of cross-pollination between radio and podcasting. Um, uh, one recent example that I've really enjoyed is the Gabriel Gatehouse series on QAnon. Fascinating and so well made and it really puts my big reference to shame. Dave? Well, if let's start again, we're just talking about the worlds we know. Let's start with the with the Eastern Daily Press and maybe include the Origin News and the weeklies as well with this. You know, I desperately desperately hope that they, they have a future. I think they're so important to, to this community and it would be a sadder place um, to see them go. But I think that for that to happen, there's got to be a realisation that it isn't a one-size-fits-all and that you have to realise that the audience out there, the potential audience out there, wants different things. At the minute, I believe that too much of regional news, is, news across the country is going down the let's try and get clicks because clicks lead to um, clicks on adverts online and that's the model it's about. Find, and that there's no denying that, that, that over time, journalism is being lessened because of that and 
and newsrooms are being told to go for the page views, to go for the quick hits. That is fine. That That is fine. That can exist. But there are people out there who want quality. There are people out there, I believe, who, who will pay for it. There are people out there who will want podcasts. There, you know, So I hope that places like the EDP survive by kind of shape-shifting again, by realising it's not one-size-fits-all. I just want to mention one other thing, though, if that's okay. I'm it. really excited to see what new might emerge because I think during this muddle, as I described at the start, during this period of turmoil, we're going to start to see some new things emerging. And that's where I'm really excited because we've seen in other parts of the country, um, I'm going to give you a couple of examples if people want to check out, there's a a, um, publication called the Bristol Cable. That was started seven or eight years ago, now employs a dozen journalists and they do fantastic analytical analytical content about the city. It's now a fortnightly, I think, publication that came out of the website. Brilliant success. There's another one called The Mill up in Manchester, which is also really starting to um, make waves. In Norwich, he was going to to join us today, but couldn't. I'm going to give a plug to the work that Tom Bristow is doing. Please do. Former investigations editor, um, working with myself. He has set up a um, website, a subscription website called The Norwich Seeker. Once a week, we get under, I'm involved in it. So, you know, just putting it out there for um, fairness reasons. Once a week, we get under the skin of an issue. The model there that's being looked at is that actually that is run as a non- not-for-profit that journalists write articles for it. You get some grant funding from wherever you can get that grant funding to pay for it. And then over time, you would start to ask the subscribers, of which there are already more than 500, which is a fantastic start in not a very long period of time. Over time, you get subscribers who care passionately about journalism and the local area to start to pay for that. But the other thing I'm excited about with that model is I think it's about... um, giving people something to get behind. I kind of would call, almost call it rebel journalism. It's about being part of something. I think that with the Bristol Cable, with the, the Mill in Manchester, and hopefully with the Norwich Seeker, people feel like they're part of a movement. So it's going to be more about more than just the journalism. It's going to be about getting people along for a debate. It's almost like a kind of journalism yeah. club. And is there also uh, something about getting people to donate? You know, that kind of buy me a coffee yeah. thing on Instagram. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah. actually, if you really enjoyed this, yeah. you know, just bung me a couple of quid here and there. Making and people realise it comes at a cost. Exactly. There's a cost that you're going to give us a little bit of a donation and that'll help our keep our running costs going. I should be doing that. So I don't, I don't want to be, so that, that you know, there are reasons, oh, reasons to be cheerful. You know, I think yeah. that there are some exciting positives that will, that, that will emerge. For the mainstream ones, it's, it's just kind of how agile can they be how prepared to try new things can they be because if they don't do that then there are people coming up through um that will try it i mean i would never have the goal to call myself a journalist and i'm serious about that because i'm just basically one bloke with too much time on his hands who's (laughs) messing about and trying to be jolly and and happy and and you know sunshine and rainbows and everything mike on on the sunshine (laughs) rainbow note i come to you rainbows absolutely well um uh, I, I, I think there's two two separate things I'm going to mention. One is um, regional TV news because that's where I come from, um, and and I also said that throughout my career that's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. I think the roller coaster is very much on the up at the moment. Actually, um, I think that um, as I said, ITV are, are committing a lot of resource and an increasing amount of resource to regional TV news, and the number of people watching it is going up. So I think, um, although, uh, you know, there's a whole issue we haven't gone into about public service broadcasting and the fact that ITV makes news because it has to under its license with Ofcom and those licenses are up for renewal in two or three years time. So who knows? But uh, all the signs are very positive that Ofcom are going to be very happy to carry on pretty much as is. 
and ITV are also going to be happy to carry on pretty much as is. I think so. I can say that. No, I'm not working for ITV, but I would say that's that's looking very positive. On the local side, um, I think, um, I mean, I, I completely get the point about not-for-profit. I'm from a commercial background, I always find that slightly tricky because I just think if it's not for profit, then it's relying on, yes, that there could be a kind of groundswell of, of, of opinion and, and let's get onto the club and let's make this happen. But I don't know what legs that will have. You know, in the end, we all have to, you know, pay the mortgage and whatever. Um, and so, I'm, I, I, but having said that, I'm now at a stage, you know, I'd, I'd love to get involved in, in something like that because, um, uh, you know, my mortgage is not as much as it used to be and and, 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 and demands aren't what they were. But um, I, I, I do think the subscription model uh, is, is one that, that could work. I think that those communities of interest are really important. Um, uh, and it's interesting. I mean, I had a conversation with Tom about the, the, the Norwich seeker and I said, you know, would you not think of making it the Norfolk seeker? And he was very focused. No, he said, no, it's about Norwich. Mm. Um, now whether, you know, you can get enough subscribers within Norwich to make it happen. I don't know, but let's really hope so. Um, and, it, and in the end, you know, content is king. Let's come back to where we all started, which is if the quality is good enough, if you're learning something that you're not or, or consuming something that you're not getting anywhere else, then you'll probably be prepared to pay for it. Well, I, I have to say that um, oh, I do have to say it, but I've forgotten what it was. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, the, sh- the polish, the polish, <laughs> definitely. No, well, you, you know, um, I remember Dave telling me this great story. Was it Port <laughs> Vale, Dave? Burton-on-Trent. Burton-on-Trent, thank you. I don't know why I thought it was Port Vale. I don't even know what story you're on about. I could just guess it must have been Burton-on-Trent. It, it was Burton-on-Trent. <laughs> uh, you, you infuriating members stories, of the National so. Muse, Muse. Oh, there's more. <laughs> well, that, They're all about Burton-on-Trent, though, so that, that's fine. That, that was it. I can come back to that now because you were saying about content is king and, and one of the reasons Dave is here is because he was he's one of my, my three uh, golden geese, if you like, who, who's really kind of pushed uh, the downloads uh, on... Um, on Eastern Promise, he's one of the the three big download uh, driving people. The other two being Saul Humphrey and George Freeman. So D- Dave wow. is here to. We're, we're, I, I'm I'm, uh, company. I'm <laughs> riding on Dave's coattails. Is, are we in the presence of an influencer? A, a influencer, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure I've ever met an influencer. I'm, that's very exciting. I, I'm told to be an influencer. I, on the other hand, am a terrible warning. Um, and uh, Dave told me this fantastic story about he was foxing the new the national news media while covering Burton on Trent Football Club. <laughs> That is true. Um, oh, no. And I don't tell it again because I want people to go and check out your <laughs> our, our, our one-on-one interview and, and listen to that story in depth. But Claire and Mike, I just wondered if you had uh, f- from the ar- your your own personal archives another story. Uh, for example, uh, talking about broadcast journalism students, I used to regularly because I was in the I have shared with the broadcast journalism students impersonate uh, their interviewees for their practical. Uh, when the, when the interviews fell through, I did. I was. <gasps> I have been. Um, I am appalled. I am very sorry, but I, I was paid in beer, which is very important. And I was, at one point, I was a, a surgeon at the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham and a Scottish surgeon too. I don't know how I pulled that off. And I think it was probably <laughs> quite transparent, but it seems to have worked all right for them because I got paid in a lot of beer. I also, I, I was also the local Liberal Democrat candidate at one point. Make of that what you will. Uh, but Claire, you must have from your archive at least one really good good story about 
your time in the media that you can share with well, us? Well, you're putting me on the spot now. Um, look, yeah, I mean, students, they do all sorts of cheeky things, don't they? As lecturers, you get quite good at um, kind of figuring out when it's fake. You know, you can kind of tell when somebody's making something up or they're reading from a script and you go, now, isn't that interesting? Where did you find that interviewee from? They seem to know their subject so well. I can't believe you've managed to do that. Um, but no, look, I mean, I think we're, we're trying to instill in them all sorts of, you know, good quality and, 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 and high integrity in terms of what they're doing. But there's always a few cheeky ones who try and do some, do some funny things when they run out past their deadline. They don't know what they're going to do. I just need to hand something in quickly. No names, no pack drill. <laughs> Mike. Um, there are so many. I'm going to go back to my very first day as a professional journalist, which, as I mentioned earlier, was on the Beckles and Bungie Journal. And I was sent out to do a um, uh, a golden wedding anniversary. In those days, they were newsworthy events. I think they happen all the time now. Um, but uh, I, I, it was a, a, it was on it was in Ditchingham. Um, and I can remember exactly where it was. And I went in and uh, it was probably about 11 o'clock in the morning. And, and I discovered subsequently that this happened pretty much on every um, golden wedding anniversary story. You'd be offered a cup of tea and I a say chicken and, and, and a piece of cake and, and then a glass of sherry. Um, even if it was 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and and uh, we got to the sherry stage. And, um, uh, and 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 the uh, the the, the uh, wife uh, went out to get the sherry, and her husband leaned forward and said, "I can't stand her, you know." <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and that's and I, why that's why he had to drink sherry at eleven in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so I I learned very quickly that there's always two sides to every story. Oh well. Well, this has not just been panel on the local news media this has been an eastern promise panel on, on the local news media and that sounded a lot funnier in my head about five seconds ago claire Preecy from the university of east anglia the legend that is david powell's and the legend that is mike tolbert thank you claire's very a legend much. too i have to just, oh, just uh, well, in my yeah. eyes anyway. we've just she just achieved legendary status clearly clearly yes <laughs> I, I apologise. I, 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 I couldn't. I, I'm going to excuse myself. Maybe we had to do that again. I, I'm going to take that from the top because I. And so I'm terribly sorry. Oh, dear. Right from the top. Um, the legend. I, I can't hey. think of a superlative high enough. The legend, legend doesn't seem to cover it, really. Claire Priestley, thank you so much uh, for hosting us in this magnificent podcasting studio, which I'm very envious of. Um, and count all the cables and things before we leave, won't you? Uh, David Powells, thank you so much. And Mike Talbot, you've put me off now. <laughs> now we're not legends. You're not legends, no. I was trained in politics where there's a, there is, I'm afraid to say, a slightly petty edge. Now I'm going to walk out. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then. The, the the almost as legendary as Claire Priestley is David Powell. I'll say that. And, and Mike Tolbert, who is in, in his own ways... Call me whatever you like, Mike. That's you know, fine. The, the, the journalistic Moses bringing tablets of stone from, down my, down, from uh, Mount Sinai. Thank you all so much. It's Thank been you. an absolute pleasure. And best of luck to you in all your endeavours, all Claire students. David, whatever it is, you, you keep your secrets, but whatever it is you're doing next... <laughs> Mike, wherever wherever life takes you now, because you, you're clearly enjoying it, whatever it is. I am. Thank you for, for giving Eastern Promise your time. Thank you all. My pleasure. Cheers. My thanks 
to Claire Preecy, Mike Tolbert and David Powells for sharing what was a much more nuanced and positive picture for local media in our region than is perhaps understood elsewhere. I am truly grateful to them for joining me and will be returning to Broadcast House later in the year. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.